Thank you for remaining standing for the reading of God's word. That Paul says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you for the scripture reading, Mike. How's everybody doing? Good. A little clapping even. I like that. Happy Father's Day to you. My name is Zach Lee, one of the guys here on staff. Super excited to have you with us, especially if you're a visitor. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And we're going to start looking at something that uh, Brother Jerry talked about last week, something called the mystery of God, the mystery of God. As you're turning there, I want to tell you a little story. <clears throat> There's really two kinds of mysteries. There are mysteries that remain mysterious, that nobody ever finds the answer to, and then there are mysteries that are revealed, mysteries that we're supposed to come to a conclusion on. Now, we on staff, all the guys on staff, if you get to know us, we love playing pranks, we love making jokes, we love making fun of each other. Sarcasm is like a love language for us, okay? And so at our previous church, what we did is there was a guy who drove this little white truck. It was like a little, little Chevy S10 or something, little white truck. And what would happen is he would park and he would go inside the church building. And so about five of us guys would go out and we would lift up the back of his truck, shift it to the side, and move it over the parking line. We would do this every day. Okay, so he looks like one of those jerks, you know, who thinks the world revolves around them and they just pull into the parking space crookedly. So there's all these cars parked perfectly in a row and then this one guy who's over like three spaces because we've moved his car. And so we keep doing this and he cannot figure it out. He's like, what is happening? Who keeps stealing my keys? He has no idea nobody's stealing his keys. We're men, all right? We lift trucks. That's what we do. And so what we do is we move his truck and we take pictures of it and we're like, hey, quit being a jerk. Stop parking this way. And so one day he gets to work and he parks in between two cars so that we can't do that. He thinks, you know what? I'm going to park in between two cars. He gets out of the truck, locks the door, and he hides his keys. And he thinks today will be the day. Well, all we did is we found out who owned the cars beside him, got them to move their cars, lift it up, and did it anyway, all right? And to this day, I'm not sure that he knows who did that. So if you're listening, it was us, all right? It's a mystery that remained mysterious, that he didn't find a solution to. There's other mysteries, though, where you're meant to come to some sort of conclusion. You're meant to have that mystery revealed to you. And so on staff, we will play pranks. So if you leave your computer open here, it's over for you. All right? We will change your background. We will send out weird emails from your account. We'll change your status on Facebook, whatever it is. And so the other day, Tim had actually left his computer up. And so uh, I got on his email, and I emailed the other guys on staff and just said, guys, be honest with me. Do my maroon skinny jeans distract people in worship? And I sent it out, okay? <laughs> now, it didn't take him long to figure out who sent that email because we all started replying with ridiculous answers. 
We'd say things like, no, give the people what they want, show off that skinny body, and we'd send it. Or, you know, the purple really brings out your eyes, or whatever it is, and we would send that out. And so it only took him about a few minutes to figure out what had happened. And so I say that because in this text, Paul is going to talk about something called the mystery of God, and it's this mystery that's been hidden in ages past that's now been revealed in Christ, that's now been revealed in Christ. It's a mystery of the second kind, a mystery that is meant to be revealed. It's something we're meant to see into. So with that in mind, let's get into this very strange text. We'll start in verse, let's say verse 7, and then we'll go through about 8a, the first half of verse 8. Let's read it together. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Okay, we've got to do a little background on this, because what Paul's basically saying is, by God's grace, he's made me a minister of a particular type of gospel. So here's my question for you. What is the gospel? Think about it for a second. Everything we do in Christianity revolves around something called the gospel, the good news. In Greek, the euangelion, the good message. What is the gospel that Paul has been talking about according to Ephesians 3? If I ask most Christians the gospel, they will say something like this, that you invite Jesus into your heart so you can go to heaven when you die, or you submit your life to Jesus or four spiritual laws, or the Romans road, or some type of evangelistic thing they've heard growing up. Now, yes and amen to all of that. Yes and amen to all of that. I'm not trying to downplay that. What I'm trying to say, though, is that the gospel is bigger than just personal salvation. It does include personal salvation. Yes and amen. But the gospel is a much bigger message than that. At least it is according to Paul in Ephesians. When the Bible talks about the gospel, it most often uses a phrase called the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a man who had two sons. The kingdom of God is like a pearl. The kingdom of God is like a field. Kingdom of God is the language used to talk about the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel of the kingdom, the book of Mark will say. What is the kingdom of God? Here's a good way to think of it. Imagine a world in which none of the effects of sin or the fall exist. Imagine a world where there's no death, there's no disease, there's no pain, there's no demonic oppression. Imagine a world in which nobody rebels against God. No demons rebel against God. No humans rebel against God. God reigns and everything goes perfectly. What would that look like? You ready? Eden. That's what it looks like. Eden is the kingdom of God having come. It's God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And when mankind sins and that becomes broken, you now get all these bad things in the world. You get death and disease and sickness and rape and murder and all these bad things. And so what God does is he proclaims that he is going to reestablish his kingdom. That's the preaching of Jesus. Through the life, teaching, death, burial, and resurrection, God is getting us back to Eden and better. That is a bigger message of the kingdom of God. And part of that gospel message includes reconciling Jew and Gentile. Okay? Reconciling Jew and Gentile. Now we've got to back up even further. What is a Jew and what is a Gentile? We're going to do a lot of theology today, so bear with me. If we typically, so in America, if I were to say, think of two different racial classes that have traditionally conflicted, we have a tendency to think black and white because of our history in the U.S. with slavery. If you were to ask someone who worshiped God in the Old Testament what the primary racial distinction was, they would say it is between Jew and Gentile, between Jew and Gentile. What is a Jew? What is a Gentile? I know we don't always use these terms outside of church. You're never walking out of a business meeting and you're like, man, that guy was a total Gentile. This is kind of church language, okay? A Jew is somebody of the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God goes to a guy named Abram, later names him Abraham, and he says, through your descendants, I'm going to bless the whole world. Okay, that's what we would call Jews. 
Everybody else is a Gentile. A Gentile is simply a non-Jew. Everybody with me so far? Okay. The distinguishing mark of Judaism, there's several, but the big one is circumcision, okay? Circumcision was meant to be this covenant sign and covenant marker for Israel in the Old Testament. Now, why circumcision? Why circumcision? Does that not seem like a strange covenant marker? There's three reasons why God assigns circumcision as this mark of the Abrahamic covenant, okay? Three reasons. Number one, it distinguishes Israel from the other nations. The other nations around Israel don't do circumcision. In fact, if you're reading the Old Testament and you say, why are there all these weird rules? Why can't Jews trim their beard? Why do they have to be circumcised? Why do they have to keep certain holy days? Why can't they eat certain kinds of food? It was meant to separate them and make them different than the other nations. That's the first reason. Number two, circumcision was seen as a mark of holiness. You were removing the flesh, if you will, seen as a mark of holiness. So in Egypt, for example, the priests would be circumcised, but nobody else. It was just a mark of holiness. Well, since God's people are to be a kingdom of priests, a priestly kingdom or a kingly priestdom, all the males in Israel would be circumcised. That's the second reason. And then the third reason, and this is very relevant for what we're doing today, the third reason that God gives circumcision as a mark of this covenant is because the promise to Abraham is that through his seed, through his lineage, through his descendants, a Messiah would come who would bless the whole world. And so in a sense, don't tell your Jewish friends this, but circumcision is a Christian symbol. It's a hope that through your lineage, as you have more and more and more babies, eventually one's going to come who's going to put the world to rights. Everybody with me on all this? And so what Paul is saying, as he starts off this by saying, of this gospel, he's trying to say, part of what I want you to know about the gospel is that it is not just reconciliation between us and God, although it is that. There's a vertical element to it. But that the gospel has a horizontal element that unites different kinds of people in Christ. That unites different kinds of people in Christ. I want to show you a few verses. We're going to look at these. I want you to see the concept of gospel being linked with the concept of Jew and Gentile coming together, and then we'll explain why this is important. Galatians 2.14. We're just going to run through a bunch of them. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the, what's the word? Gospel. I said to Cephas. Cephas, by the way, is Peter. Kepha in Aramaic is rock, just like Petros in Greek is rock. He's called Cephas, he's called Peter, he's called Simon Peter, same guy. I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In the book of Galatians, Paul rebukes Peter for forgetting the gospel. What did Peter forget? Did he forget that Jesus was raised from the dead? No. Did he forget that Jesus died on the cross for his sins? No. What he did is he forgot that the gospel is supposed to unify Jew and Gentile. He withdrew from eating with Gentiles, and Paul says, if you do that, you don't understand the gospel. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There it is again, gospel links Jew and Gentile. Galatians 2.7, Zach, why did you talk about all the weird circumcision stuff? Galatians 2.7, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. The gospel unites Jew and Gentile. Galatians 3.8, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. When the Bible says that the gospel was preached to Abraham, what was told Abraham? Was he told about the resurrection? Was he told about substitutionary atonement? 
He was told that through his descendants would come a Messiah who would get us back to Eden, who would heal the rift between God and man and between other humans. So here's what I'm just trying to say as we start off in the very first verse of this to say, when he says, of this gospel I was made a minister, the gospel according to Paul is not just personal relationship with Jesus, although it is that, there's also a horizontal dimension that unites people with other people. If you say you love and trust Jesus, but you have bitterness and you have hatred towards somebody else, you don't understand the gospel. That's why Jesus will say, if you don't forgive somebody, you won't be forgiven. They go together. What is the greatest command given in the Bible? What is it? Who knows it? You can shout it out. I heard it somewhere. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. How do we know that's the greatest command? Because Jesus says, this is the greatest command, right? What's the second greatest command? Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the vertical aspect and the horizontal aspect in the Bible go together. The gospel is a bigger cosmic message about reconciliation than I think we have a tendency to think about. Okay, that's just the first three words, and that took like 10 minutes. All right, let's keep going. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Paul is saying this, not only was he saved by God's grace, but that he was made a minister by God's grace. Not only does God save the worst of the worst, but he uses us. He uses the worst of the worst. What does Paul mean when he says that he's the least of the saints? I think it's similar to 1 Corinthians 15, 9, where he says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul's job was to imprison Christians and when they voted to kill them, to put his vote against them. I don't know what your job is. Maybe you're a banker or a doctor or a businessman or something like this. Paul is a professional Christian persecutor, all right? It's, it's like ISIS or something today. That's his job. And what he's saying is, not only did God save me by his grace, but that's who God decided to use to preach the gospel. So let me just say this to you as a word of encouragement. Nobody in here has a past that's so bad that God cannot use you. Nobody in here struggles with something too much to where God can't use you. God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Aren't you glad? Doesn't matter how broken you are. Doesn't matter what you've done in your past. Doesn't matter how old or young you are. I've talked to some people that say, well, I'm getting along in years. I don't know how God's going to use me. How old is Moses when God calls him to lead Israel out of Egypt? Eighty. All right? How many 80-year-olds want to walk from Israel to Egypt or backwards? All right? It's tough, and God uses them. Nobody in here can't be used because of a lack of education or a lack of talent or any of that. God uses these kind of people to spread his gospel. It blows my mind, not only that God would save me, but that he would use me because if you get to know me, I'm kind of an idiot, all right? In high school, what we would do is we would put a piece of wood on the street, and we would stand on it, and we would hold on to the back of somebody's truck while they drove, and we called it streetboarding. I don't think God's up in heaven being like, that's who I want on my team. That's the guy. Just idiots, right? How we live to today, I have no idea. There's one time I was uh, wanting to do some weightlifting, and I wanted to do some bicep curls, and I took a 45-pound plate weight. You know those big round ones that you put on the end of a barbell? Well, those have a diameter to them that I did not calculate for. And so I grabbed them in each hand, I grabbed one in each hand, and I just go, wham, and hit myself right in the face, okay? Cut my lips, look around to see who saw that. It's part of it, it's part of the workout, strengthening my lips, right? That's not who God uses. 
but apparently he does. There was a time in college, I don't know why I'm telling you all this. I'm, I'm reiterating the fact that I'm an idiot. Um, there was a time in college where I wanted some orange juice, and the only kind of orange juice we had was the, the orange juice with pulp in it, which I think is part of the fall. I hate pulp, okay? And so I wanted some fresh orange juice without pulp, and so I strained the orange juice through a sock so that I could have a delicious glass of orange juice. Now, not a dirty sock. That would be weird, right? That's not the guy where God says, yeah, I think that's who I'm going to save and that's who I'm going to use. What Paul is saying is the reason it's by God's mercy and God's grace is because he didn't deserve all of it. If God can save somebody and use somebody, like the Apostle Paul who tries to kill Christians, he can use us. He can use us. It's amazing that he uses us despite the fact how broken we are. It's amazing that... I was thinking about this as we were singing. It's amazing that God lets me sing praises to him because I am literally the worst singer you've ever heard. I mean, when I sing, it sounds like I'm getting kidnapped by circus clowns. It's terrifying, all right? I remember one time singing in church and hearing some bad sound. And so I stopped, hear who that was, and it went away. And it was me. And yet, God receives our joyful noises. Hyena shrieks, though mine may be, all right? Though mine may be. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. Let's look at verse 8b. What did God call you to do, Paul? 8b through 10. Two things. Number one, to preach to the Gentiles, there it is again, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. There's that word we've been looking at. Mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Look at this next verse. This is one of the weirdest verses in the Bible. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Here's what this text just said. This text just said that the reason that God unites Jew and Gentile in the church is to show off his wisdom to angels and demons. That's what this text just said. That's why I say it's a weird text. Heavenly powers and these kind of things, that's used in Ephesians to talk about angels and demons. Principalities, powers, rulers, authorities, those are all Jewish terms for angels. So what this text just said is that God called Paul to preach the gospel to Gentiles and to reveal this mystery. And part of that mystery is that Jew and Gentile now come together in the church, and that shows off God's wisdom to demons. Is that not a weird text? Is that not a weird Father's Day text? Why didn't we talk about fathers, right? It's a weird text. So here's my question to you, church. How does Jew and Gentile, two ethnic groups coming together in the church, show off God's wisdom to demons? That's what this text says. How does that happen? Well, walk with me through this. I think this is the answer. In the Garden of Eden, you have unity. You have unity between God and man, right? God walks with Adam. And you have unity between humans. There's just unity. Adam and Eve are not fighting over whose turn it is to empty the dishwasher in the garden, all right? Everything's good. There's no fighting. Everything's good. When mankind sins, it creates a rift, not just between God and man, although it certainly does that, but it creates a rift now between other humans, between other humans. The curse immediately placed on them is... To the woman, your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. There's already this from the beginning. Now this fact that humanity is going to clash. Adam, instead of lovingly leading his wife, is now going to instead, what do men do with our wives? We are mean or we're abusive or we're snappy or we're aggressive or we err on the other side and we become passive and be terrible leaders. 
That's part of the result of the fall. And Eve, instead of wanting to lovingly submit to the leadership of her husband, because by the way, a wife's submission to her husband doesn't come as a result of the fall. Eve's made to be a helper before the fall. 1 Corinthians 2 says this explicitly. Instead of wanting to lovingly submit to her husband's leadership, she now wants to take the reins of that relationship. So if you're a man and you say, man, sometimes I don't lead my family very well, I'm kind of absent or I'm passive, that's part of the results of the fall. If you're a guy and you say, man, I sometimes I'm too harsh with my kids, I'm too harsh with my wife, I'm too aggressive, that's part of the fall. If you're a wife and you don't like submitting to your buffoon husband, that's part of the results of the fall because you'll submit to a boss at a job, but when it comes to your husband, you don't want to. Why? Because there's a brokenness now. You see it with Adam and Eve. Right after that, you see it with Cain and Abel, right? You see it with Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. You now see murder. You see more division. Right after that, you get the Tower of Babel. What is the Tower of Babel? It's like ancient social media. Everybody gets together and pulls all their stupid together, and they say, we're going to exalt ourselves, and we're going to make ourselves great, and we're going to make a tower to the heavens. Who needs God? We will be great. And so God curses them and confuses their language, and they're spread out. There's division. There's division. There's division. In the Old Testament Mosaic Law, it brought division from Jew and Gentile. Even if you were a Gentile and converted to Judaism, you could not get as close to the temple as the other Jews. If you were a woman, there was a court for women that you could not get as close to the presence of God in the temple. The entire Old Testament has division, 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 division between races, division between men and women, division between those who are Jews and those who are Gentiles. All this division, rape, war, adultery, murder, uh, stealing, division, division, division. So, with all that in mind, what does it mean when in the church you start to see reconciliation of different people groups? It means Christ has been victorious and his kingdom has begun and God shows his wisdom to angels and demons. It's a reminder to the demons that their gig is up. Their reign is over. Division comes as a result of the fall, so when you start to see unity in the church, it means that God is reversing the effects of the fall. He's putting the world back to rights in Christ. In Christ, okay? That's what this means. To good angels, they rejoice. By the way, did you know the Bible teaches that angels watch our worship? I know that's kind of weird. That's why 1 Corinthians says that a woman should have a head covering because of the angels. You're like, what? Because they, want, they, they, they care about what's going on in worship, okay? And to bad angels, what we would call demons, it's a reminder that their gig is up. Their reign is over. Christ has won. They have lost. They can no longer bring division because in the church, God has begun to create one body, one body. By the way, even outside of the Bible, can division be an issue in our culture? I mean, we live in one of the most divided times in the history of the United States. There's division between races. There's division between men and women. We live in an age where there's hypersexism, but also hyperfeminism. We live in an age where there is division among political parties. Oh, my gosh. We live in an age where there's division uh, between social classes. How many uh, millionaires are hanging out with homeless people that you know? That's what I thought, right? There's division all over the place, okay? Let me just destroy your hope in humanity for a second. Mankind will not be able to solve those problems apart from Christ. Is there ever a time coming in the future where there will be no more racism? Where there will be no more sexism? Where there will be no more political division? Where there be... That's not going to happen. You know why? Because you can't politic the evil out of people. You can't vote the evil out of people. Notice that it's in Christ that these things happen. Apart from Christ, you don't have a shot. I'm not saying don't be involved in certain things. I'm not saying we couldn't do better. What I'm saying is, ultimately, 
Those things don't happen unless you know Christ. But Zach, maybe through more education we could do it. The most education, most educated, isn't it funny to mess up saying the word education? There's, there's irony there. The most educated nation in the world in the 1940s was Nazi Germany. Did that stop their racism? No. Ask the Jews. Ask the Jews. This is a reminder that in Christ, God is doing what sinful humanity cannot do on our own. Cannot do on our own. Tell you a little story. I, uh, I've told a few of you guys this story, so I apologize for the repeat, but for the rest of you, I got a chance one time to try out as a pitcher for the Toronto Blue Jays, okay? Now, let me tell you why this is actually an interesting story. I never really played baseball growing up, okay? I played two years in elementary school as a kid, not competitively, and I was terrible. I would always get hit by the ball. The ball would be coming right at me, and I'd say, oh, man, it's going to hit me, and I would just freeze like a deer in the headlights, and it would clock me. And so it made me really timid, so I barely step in the batter's box and kind of do one of these uh, swings like that, you know? It looks like I'm casting for fish or something. And I was a terrible baseball player, so after two seasons, I stopped, never played baseball again. So I was talking to a buddy of mine at a uh, place where I had worked, and he was a uh, college baseball player. And he said, Zach, the Texas Rangers each year have a day where anyone can come try out. It's an open walk-on tryouts day. He said, I think it would be hilarious if you went and tried out for the Rangers having never played baseball. And I said, deal, all right? So I start training as a pitcher to try out for the Texas Rangers. I couldn't hit or field. I didn't have time to learn all that. I learned one thing, all right? So I figured I'd devote myself to pitching. Throwing was the only thing I could, I could ever do at least a little bit. So I start doing this, and I meet a guy at my church who is a former pro pitcher. And he said, Zach, I think the fact that you've never played baseball and you're going to try out for a pro team is so awesome, I'm going to train you for free. So this guy charges over $100 an hour for baseball lessons, and he's just training me for free. So every week I'm going to his facility, and we're doing stretches, and we're learning to throw different pitches, and I'm learning how to throw a curveball and a changeup, and learning all these other kind of things, all right? He said I was his most improved student, not because of how good I was, but because of how badly I started. He said, and I quote, the first time I ever saw you throw, I thought you might actually be left-handed, okay? I'm right-handed, so do something with that. So I start training. I start thinking, this is my shot. I'm going to be a pro pitcher. God's Pitcher will be the name of my first book, From Pastor to Pitcher by Zach Lee. This will be great. And it turns out that that summer, the Rangers had canceled it, and they did not have an open walk-on day, and I was heartbroken. But I met another guy who was a scout for the Toronto Blue Jays. And I told him what I wanted to do. And he said, you know what? I'll let you try out for the Blue Jays. So we did this whole thing. He did the scouting report, throw these pitches, all this kind of stuff. And I got to try out, basically having never played baseball, for the Toronto Blue Jays. So that when my son Judah plays T-ball, I can say, son, you know your dad tried out for a pro team, right? Now, as hanging in my office, on my office wall, is my rejection letter from the Toronto Blue Jays, okay? And my favorite line in there is, and I quote, your present abilities consistently fall short of what's needed for baseball success. Okay? You might have seen a fastball, but you've never seen a Zach Lee 67 mile an hour slow fastball. I'm the only one who throws that pitch. Okay? It is a reminder to me every time I see it that my dreams of being a pitcher are over. That gig is up. That's not going to happen. As I get older, it only becomes less likely. Right? That's what the church does to demons. When they see what's going on, what God is doing in reconciling men and women, it's a reminder to them their glory years are over. Their reign is over. Their gig is up. Christ will be successful. 
It's like Nazis looking at what's going on on the beachheads of Normandy after D-Day. It's a reminder that Berlin is going to fall. Berlin is going to fall. Verse 11. How does God do this? This, unifying Jew and Gentile in the church, exposing the mystery of God, verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay? All right, let's do a little theology. I know we've gone over a lot so quick. Everybody take a big breath with me. <sighs> Relax. We've got to do some theology, all right? So put your thinking caps on. I want to ask you a theological question. Ready? Who are God's people? Think about it for a second. Who are God's people? Is it Israel? They're called God's people in the Old Testament. Has anything changed? Is it the church, those that are united to Christ, who are God's people? Does he have two people? Is Jesus a polygamist? Does he have two brides? Is it neither? What's the answer to that question? That's a pretty important question. Who are the people of God? Let me ask the question a different way. There's all these promises in the Old Testament made to Israel. Will those... Do you agree with me? There's all these promises made to Israel. There's promises of a temple. There's promises of land. There's promises of a priesthood. There's all these promises made to Israel. Will those promises be fulfilled in literal, national, physical Israel, on the one hand, or are those promises fulfilled in a spiritual Israel, the church, on the other hand? Think about it for a second. Are all those promises in the Old Testament fulfilled in national, literal, physical Israel, or are they fulfilled in the church? If you say those promises are fulfilled in literal, national, physical Israel, if you say either some of them or all of them are, you are what is called a dispensationalist. There's your fancy $5 theology term, all right? You're called a dispensationalist. That term, by the way, is super unhelpful because a dispensation is just a period of time. So all denominations hold that there are different periods of time in the Bible. So it's a super unhelpful uh, title, but a dispensationalist is somebody who thinks that the promises made to Israel will be fulfilled in literal, national, physical Israel. Everybody with me so far? On the other end of the spectrum, if you believe that the promises made to Israel will be fulfilled in the church, the true Israel, you are what is called a covenantalist. This is called federalism or covenantal theology. Now, again, that term, super unhelpful because all denominations agree that God makes covenants with people, okay? But that is a big split and a big division when it comes to who are the people of God. On the one hand, there are people that say, God has all these promises made to Israel. He must fulfill in Israel. On the other hand, there are those that say, God has all these promises he's made to Israel, but those will be fulfilled in the church. The dispensationalist sees a high level of discontinuity between the Old and New Testaments. The covenantalist sees a high level of continuity between the Old and New Testaments. Which one of those answers are right? Is it A, Israel, B, the church, or C, Zach's super secret answer? C, C you got it. I think that the problem with that division is that there is both a continuity and a discontinuity. Christ brings new wine that doesn't fit into old wineskins. I think that all the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus, who is the true Israelite. Well, you're not taking it literally. What do you mean I'm not taking it literally? Jesus is Jewish. Jesus is Israel as a man. Israel has 12 tribes. How many disciples does Jesus have? 12. Israel goes out into the wilderness to wander for 40 years. Jesus wanders in the wilderness for 40 days, whereas he is successful, whereas Israel was not. Israel has the temple. Jesus is the temple. Israel has God's law. Jesus keeps God's law. Israel goes through the Jordan into the promised land. Jesus goes through the Jordan at his baptism. Jesus is Israel as a man. He's Israel personified. He's replaying the role of Israel, and he is succeeding where they have failed. 
So the issue is not, is this promise fulfilled in this people group or this people group? It's fulfilled in Christ and everyone linked to Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. The covenantalist doesn't realize that there is a newness to the new covenant. It ignores the, the ethnic dimension. Circumcision is not like baptism. It doesn't symbolize the same thing. Whereas the dispensationalist sees a huge divide between the two. Why do I think that Jesus, all the promises of God in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus? Let me just read you a few verses. 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's why I think that, all right? Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that's Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus says all of the prophets, the promises, Moses was all about him. Galatians 3, 16, look at this one. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. What do we call Abraham's offspring? We already talked about this. The Jews, but look at this verse. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. The promises were not just made to a plural group of people, according to Paul in Galatians. They were made about Jesus. Galatians 3, 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Not those of physical descent who are just the sons of Abraham. Those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Romans 2, 28 through 21, 29, look at this one. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Philippians 3, 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Who's the circumcision according to Paul? Those who are Christians. Ephesians 2, 14 through 15, which Jeff taught about a couple weeks ago. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Now, I'm not saying there might not be a time in the future where God somehow saves a big group of Jews. Romans 11 hints at that. But if he does so, it's only through Christ. There is only one way to God. There is only one people of God, and it's those who are united to Christ, Jew or Gentile. If you're a Jew and you don't believe in Jesus, you've cut yourself off from that rich root of the olive tree. If you're a Gentile and you believe in Jesus, you've been grafted in. But Jesus is the key. He is Jewish. He is Israel. He is the true Israelite. The promises are about him, and everybody that's linked to him has those promises true of them as well. Okay? Verse 12. Oh, why did I say that? Let's look again at uh, verse 11. This was according, uniting Jew and Gentile, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in whom? In Christ Jesus our Lord. The unification of Jew and Gentile, this mystery, has been accomplished in Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. Verse 12, talking about Jesus, says this. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. A sinner cannot just come before a holy God for the same reason that bin Laden can't just come before the president. There's enmity there, all right? We need someone to make atonement so that we can come before the Father. This is similar to Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. It says this about Jesus. So then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We cannot approach God, Jew or Gentile, because we are all sinful. It is only through being united to Christ that we can, and then we can approach him boldly. Nowhere else in the world do you get to wake up a king at two in the morning to get a glass of water without getting your head cut off. But we have that kind of access if you're the king's son or the king's daughter. Let me say it this way. My son, uh, Judah, who's almost two, we've got a great relationship. If we're sitting on the couch, he will crawl up in my lap and he will get right in my face and he'll say, hi, dada. And I'll say, hey, buddy. And then he'll sneeze (laughs) or he'll burp or he'll do something gross. Okay, right? Hi, dada. And it just gets all over me. Okay? Now, I don't like that, but it's okay because he's my son. We have that kind of relationship. But if you crawl up in my lap and you sneeze in my face, I will shoot you, all right? <laughs> Why? Because we don't have that relationship. Well, he, he and I have a relationship of a son to a father. How do we as sinners go before the most holy, perfect, righteous, spotless being in the universe? We cannot unless we're in his son. Jesus can sit on the Father's lap, if you want to say it that way, and there's a sense in which we are in Christ. So we have this boldness to come before God because we're in Christ. Listen, we have a tendency to feel like the way we need to come before God is trying our best. Straighten our ties, put our best foot forward, show God how respectful we are, these kind of things. Listen, we come before God in Christ. You don't have to clean yourself up before you go to God. You don't have to stop struggling with things or fix your sins or conquer those things. In fact, you come to God to have those things cleansed. There's this big reversal in our thinking where we say, okay, I'm coming for the the God of the universe. I better try to clean myself up. No, you better just rest in Christ who is perfect so that you are clean. You can still be broken and sinful and honest and authentic. That we have a boldness to approach his throne because of Christ. Because of Christ. Lastly, look at verse 13 and then we'll be done. So I ask you, says Paul, not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. What he means by that is your salvation. The word glory can mean several things in the Bible. Here he means, like when we say that someone went off to glory, he means the idea of salvation. Here's what he's saying. Don't be disheartened that I'm having to be persecuted to get this gospel message to unite Jew and Gentile. That's part of the plan. That's part of the plan. We had a, uh, there was a professor where I studied theology. By the way, this is interesting. Jeff, Jerry, and I all studied theology at schools that are dispensational, but none of us are, because those schools also did a great job of teaching us how to interpret the Bible, okay? So anyway, so that where I went to study theology, there was a missions professor, and the first day of class, you would go into class, and he would start taking off his shirt, and you thought to yourself, Let, let's just everybody keep our clothes on in here. What's going on? What, whatever you need to teach me, you can teach me from a book, all right? Let's keep our shirt on. And what he would do is he would take off his shirt, and he would show you his back, where he had been tortured as a missionary in the Middle East. He would show you his scars. He would show you his burns. He would show you where he had been beaten and show you that. But for him, he was happy to do it because it meant that the gospel went out and those in the Middle East who weren't Christians became Christians. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, don't get disheartened that I'm suffering by uniting Jew and Gentile. It's a difficult mission. But that's what has to happen for salvation to happen. That's what has to happen for the gospel message to go out. Don't despise that, says Paul. Now, how can we end? Oh, I want to read you one more verse, actually, that I think is really helpful for verse 13, and I'll tell you how we're going to end today. 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 10. Look at what Paul says here. It's very similar to what he said in verse 13. 
Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, is preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Look at verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You see that idea of glory again. Paul is saying that suffering is not uh, new or novel. Suffering is part of the Christian life, and he's happy to suffer to get the gospel message out there. That's what he's saying. Now, so what? We just taught a text about how God shows his wisdom by having two racial groups come together in the church, and that shows that he is smarter than angels and demons. That's the purpose of this text. What is the application for us today? Jerry talked about this today. We interpret a passage, and then we have to apply it. We ask, so what? I'm going to give you five questions I want you to think about. I'm just going to read these. They're not on the screen. I want you just to think about it. I'm not going to make you raise your hand or do anything like that. I just want you to think about these questions of how we can apply this text to our lives today. Let me read them. And where God convicts you, repent and rest in his mercy. Number one, let's talk about within the church first, then we'll talk about those outside the church. Within the church. Are there any people groups you do not like, you do not associate with, or toward whom you are apathetic? If something pops up in your heart where you might be racist or something like that, don't push it down. Listen to that. Let me read it again. Are there any people groups that you do not like, you do not associate with, or toward whom you are apathetic? Are there any races that you just, you don't like? You're not a racist. You just don't really like hanging out with them. What about gender? If you're a woman, do you think men are the problem? You're mad at or hate men? If you're a man, do you think women are the problem? You think of them just as emotional creatures or whatever, whatever it is. Are there some type of group of people you don't really like as much? What about different classes? Do you hate rich people because you think they must be greedy and corrupt? Do you hate poor people because you think that they must just be lazy? What groups of people do you not really like deep in your heart? It's just between you and God. Different ages, you don't like older people, you think they're irrelevant, you don't like younger people, you don't like millennials, whatever it is. What people groups do you not like? That's inside the church. Let's talk about outside the church. Are there any types of lost people that you refuse to be around? What about people of other religions? How many Muslim friends do you have? How many Mormon friends? How many Hindu friends? What about people of other sexual lifestyles? How many friends that practice homosexuality do you have? Again, we're talking outside the church. We're not saying they're believers or something. We're saying, what about people who hold differing political opinions than you? How many of them do you hang out with? How many of them do you hang out with, regardless of what side you're on in politics? Number three, is there anyone in your life with whom you are still a little bit bitter? You're not saying that you haven't forgiven them, but when they call, you kind of roll your eyes. When you hear their name, you kind of get frustrated. When you think about them, you wish you could have gone back in time and said something else. Anybody that there's still a little bit of division against in your heart. Number four, if there is division between you and somebody else, what next steps is God asking you to do? Do you need to call them? Do you need to get coffee? Do you need to send an email? Maybe they've passed away and you can just pray for their family. What is it? And then lastly, do you feel you're too broken to be used by God? You've sinned too much. You've struggled too much. There's too many issues you think going on in your own life for God to use you. Because let me remind you, he used Paul, who was trying to kill Christians. He can certainly use us. Let me pray for us. And as we pray, if you need to repent of any of these things, give them to Jesus. 
You can be honest with Jesus. You can tell them that you're frustrated or you don't like this person or you're still mad at them, whatever it is. He already knows. We're not tricking him. So as we pray, would you give bitterness to Jesus? Would you give racism to Jesus? Would you give sexism or feminism or whatever to Jesus? Whatever your issue is that you're dealing with that would not promote unity in the church, would you give that to Jesus? Because here's what Paul just said. If your gospel doesn't include reconciling humans together, it's not a complete gospel. Let's pray as the men come forward to serve communion. Father, I confess that uh, I'm broken and I'm dumb a lot of the time. And I thank you that you've saved me despite all those things. Uh, I pray for everybody in here. I pray for anybody that's struggling with anything, anybody that's mad, anybody that, where they feel like there's division, anywhere where there's gossip, any of that. Would you lovingly, lovingly encourage them? Would you help them? I pray for those that are bitter towards a friend or a family member that you'd give them the strength to reach out and just say hello, to pray for people that they don't like, that we are to love our enemies. We're to pray for those who persecute us. We don't, I, don't, I, I just confess, I don't usually want to do that. I want to fight my enemies. I don't want to pray for them. And so I pray that you would uh, be with us, that you would encourage us, that you would help us in this, this morning. And I just pray for more unity within your church. I know that it can't be done in the larger world. I know we can grow and we should be involved in certain things, but ultimately mankind will not solve our own ills apart from the one true man. Jesus, the, the God-man. And so it's in his name that we pray and we ask for your help. Amen.